Today, as we continue our sermon series on New You, um, here's essentially a summary of the last three weeks, okay? Uh, the foundational verse sort of has been Romans 6, chapters, uh, chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. And what we've said is that your relationship to sin, I don't know if it's up there, uh, we could go ahead and skip all the beginning passages. Yeah, go on to the next one. Here's the summary of Romans 6, and we don't have time to review because we got to go on. Your relationship to sin has been changed forever. Romans 6, and it has been changed in two ways. Number one, we died to the penalty of sin. And that's 2 Corinthians 5, what we've talked about. That we are no longer, because of what Christ has done, under condemnation. That we have been made righteous and just in God's sight. So that when God looks at us right now, not tomorrow when we do better, not next week if we obey. But right now, as he looks at us, he sees us in Christ as he sees his son Jesus. Having done all the work that Jesus has done, which was perfect obedience. (laughs) It's an amazing truth that will take a lifetime to to, to understand. And secondly, we die to the power of sin. Romans 6, 5 has been instrumental for us. We've united, if we have been united with him like that is death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. The resurrection power that came into the life, the dead body of Jesus on Easter morning and brought him back to life. Palangenesia is the word. Review our past sermons. That same power, resurrection power, it says in Titus 3, 5, and 6, came into our lives, raising us, raising our spiritually dead bodies back to life so that when this happens, the old is gone and the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. When the resurrection power comes into our lives, we are brought from death to life. And the result is the power of sin, the rule and reign of sin, the chain, the bondage of sin has been broken forever. Do you know that when you became a Christian, you got more than just a get out of free jail card? Do you know that? That when you became a Christian, it wasn't just about, okay, well, now, good luck. When we became a Christian, the resurrection power of God, the person of the Holy Spirit, came to reside in our hearts, and he has made us new. So in a true sense, there isn't really an old you and a new you. They're battling kind of for, you know, what should I do? The old you says, I want to do what I used to do, and the new you says, I want to. There isn't. The old you, listen, died. It's a husk. It's dead skin. It doesn't have a heartbeat. It's screaming, kicking, and it wants to drag you down to who you were. But the Bible says that part of you died. And the new you, the new you that desires God, desires obedience, loves God, longs for God, the new you, the real you, the true you, The Christian life is recognizing this truth and living in light of that. That's why the New Testament, when it talks about how we live our Christian lives and grow, talks it like this. Philippians chapter 1. 
or chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you. The Bible says you have been made new, a new creature, new creation, that have died to the penalty and the power of sin. That is the real you. That is the true you. Now live in light of that. The Bible nowhere in the New Testament says you need something more. You have everything that you need to live this life. And the Bible says now live in light of that, in reality of that. Is that good news? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? For many of us, Descartes gave us, I think, therefore I am. For many of us, it's I feel, therefore it must be true. And your feelings, our feelings are like turbulent ocean going back and forth depending on the circumstances. Do you really want to base reality on how you're feeling today? We base reality on what? Truth. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us embrace this truth because we can't do it on our own. Help us. Okay, so as we go on, we're going to be go, uh, spending a couple weeks in Romans 7. We kind of did an overview last week, so we're going to go through Romans 7, verse by verse. When we come to chapter 7, Paul talks about another change of relationship that has occurred. Romans 6, relationship to sin has changed. And when we come to chapter 7, here's the summary. Our relationship to the law has been changed forever. Everybody say law. Everybody say law. Like you mean it, law. When the Bible says law... In Romans 7, it's primarily talking about the Ten Commandments, the revealed will of God. All the things that Scripture says we should do, should not do. And the Bible says when we become a new creation, our relationship, not just sin has changed, our relationship, how we relate to the law has changed. To get us going this morning, I want to share a little bit of my testimony. Is that okay? So I grew up in the church. I became a Christian when I was 14 years old. But my high school years is a blur spiritually. You know why? I was never discipled. Uh, that's another whole sermon topic in ourselves, discipleship. How many of you guys kind of relate to that? You became a Christian, we never disciple, we just kind of figure stuff out. Never disciple. When I went to college is when I really started growing spiritually. And when I went to college, I also, though, connected with a group of people who would tremendously impact me for life. Godly people, they love Jesus. But one of the things that really characterized their approach to the Christian life was your Christian life was conformity to a set of rules. Can anybody relate to that? I know there's some Catholics among us, but some of us that grew up in evangelical churches, set of rules. Now, the basic thing is, it seems like these rules are just about similar all over, whether you're from, you know, where I grew up in Korean church or not. So you had the do's, like you had to do quiet time. Do we even use that word, by the way, quiet time? Okay, quiet devotion. It's where you like read the Bible, you pray, spend time with God. Quiet time. Anyway, so you had to do your quiet time. You had to read the Bible. You had to pray. And if you're like me, you grew up in the Korean church. You had what's called morning prayer or sebyokido, right? Because Koreans think that Jesus got up early in the morning and prayed. So if you're a good Christian, you do that, right? So I did that when I was in college. Got up every morning at 5 o'clock and I made other people do it too, by the way. You know, uh, one of those deals. And then there were don'ts, and the don'ts were very similar. Like, you, you, you didn't dance, which is okay with me because I was a terrible dancer. <laughs> you didn't drink. You didn't smoke. Uh, you didn't date girls that did those things, right? And then there was this one, and some of you guys, maybe I'm too old, to, too old for this. You didn't listen to rock music. Is anybody, anybody? 
So we would have these things where you like burned albums. ACDC, Led Zeppelin, Ozzy Osbourne, anybody? See, you're too young, right? You're too young. You're sitting there going, what are albums? Albums, they're like big things. They were black. You put them, you know. And people would sit around and bonfires and, you know, we would burn these things. And people would be like, oh my gosh, that's Satan dying. No, that's plastic burning. That's plastic burning. We would do these things. And goodness gracious, I spent a lot of money on those albums and down the drain. We didn't listen to rock music and we didn't do all the... And there were these huge things. And not only did you obey these things, but you also made sure that other people did. Now, here's the thing. Even though it was well-intentioned and well-meaning, my testimony is, honestly, I didn't have a relationship with God. I had a relationship with the law. Because if you'd asked me, Peter, how you doing? I would have been like, okay, let me give you the list of things I did. I did my quiet time today. I prayed. I did my devotion. Here's another way. I was narcissistically, I said last week, obsessed with how I was doing spiritually. How am I doing? Am I growing? Am I right with God? And my entire focus was not on, listen, what Christ has done for me, but what I needed to do. So if you would have looked at my Bible, looked at my book, because I like to highlight, all the highlighted parts were things that I needed to do. Do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouth. Do not, you know. That was the entire focus of my spiritual life were all the things that I needed to do. It did two things for me. It made me feel self-righteous because here's the thing about rules-oriented Christianity. You make them doable. In other words, it's all external behavior. And if you're obeying externally, you could avoid the real heart issues. So inside, even though externally I was obeying, inside I was self-righteous, very judgmental, and completely unloving. Some of you could relate this morning. You don't really have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with the law. And you may be a Christian. And the entire focus of your spiritual life, grow, change, battle with sin, is not on what Christ has done. That's kind of nice, Peter. But the entire focus is on what you need to do. And I don't even need to know. Here's what's going on. Deep inside, you feel insecure. Deep down inside, there's a sense of condemnation. And even though you might be obeying, you're resenting the very obedience. There's no joy. Now, here's what happened to me. Here's what I say happen all the time. You come out of that type of Christian living approach. And so you leave that school, leave that church, leave your parents or whatever, and you kind of get free, and all of a sudden, you fall off the wagon spiritually. The rules and laws that seem to keep you straight and narrow in obedience didn't have long-term lasting change effect. Does anybody understand what I'm talking about? Okay. Okay, I thought so. Okay. They did it. They did it. And matter of fact, you found yourself at one point doing things that you never ever thought were imaginable, which made it even easier for you to go, you know what, I'm done, not with God, but I'm done with what? That approach of Christian living, that approach of Christian life. And you just walked away from church, those people. Now, here's the thing, guys. You ask, what happened? Listen very carefully. In many of our cultures in Christian living, even though our Churches or pastors would never say, the law, rules, have the power to save you. We deep down inside think that they have the power to grow us. Parents, if you don't get this, 
you will exacerbate your children. You're going, oh, Peter, what are you talking about? Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Parents, here's what we do. We think that rules in and of itself could change people. So what do we do? We lay down the rules and we set up structures thinking that it's going to change the hearts of our children. Rules, regulations, and what happens? Their hearts don't change. Do we need rules? Absolutely. Do we need guidelines? Absolutely. We need them for order. We need them. The theologians call them civil use of the law. We need them. But when we mistake thinking that if we simply lay down the law, that it will change people's hearts, we exacerbate our children. He's sitting there going, does this happen in churches? Of course it happens in churches. Why? Some of you grew up in churches where all you heard were, here are four things you need to do, five things you need to do. Why? Because the mindset is the laws and the rules can change your heart. So if I lay them down thick, I've done my job. You want to know something? Laws and rules can reveal sin, but it does not have the power to remove it. Ah, oh, okay, you're with me. Laws and rules tell you what a sanctified life looks like, but laws and rules do not have the power to sanctify you. Are you hearing me? Do you see what we've done? Do you see what we've done? We've taken these laws, we've taken these rules, and we says, the law, the laws, if we just lay it down thick, if we just tell people what to do, but nowhere in the Bible does it say that the law can engender what it commands. The laws are good, the laws are given for obedience, but the laws cannot and will not produce change and desire. The law shows me what godliness looks like, but the laws cannot make us godly. That's for Some of you are sitting there going, oh my gosh, you just explained 10 years of my Christian life. <sighs> Peter, it's been laid thick in my life. And nobody told me that there was someone others, something else. They just laid it down and said, not only will you obey, but this has the power to change you and to change me. If we don't understand the function of the law, and we're going to be spending two weeks on this, and we come to believe that the law has the power to change us, think about how that affects everything that we do. Think about how that affects everything that we do. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it again. If this is like a whiplash experience for you, I'm glad. I'm going to say it again. The laws are good. The laws are given by God, and we'll talk about this. The laws are, are expressive of the character of God, but the laws themselves were never meant to change your heart. The law doesn't make you go, oh, I want it. The laws reveal sin. It does not have the power to remove it. Oh, man. You know what happens when you have a relationship with the law and not with God? I've said this many times through the sermon series. First of all, it'll destroy your intimacy with God. When you live in a law-based relationship with God, you're living in a performance-based. Everybody say performance-based. Performance-based, performance-based relationship with God. That means that when you perform well, you're in. When you don't perform well, you're out. And the result is if you're in a performance-based law relationship with God, there's constant fear. Why? Let's just speak humanly. If you're in a relationship with somebody, your parents, your wife, your husband, spouse, 
And you fear rejection from them if they got to know the real you? Can you ever be truly intimate with them? Yes or no? Because deep down inside, every single one of us, we long to know and to be fully known. We long to know someone to be fully known. But that will never happen in the context of a relationship where that person you're with, you're going, you might reject me. And you know this, some of you, intimately, because this explains your relationship, not just with God, but in your marriage. So what's happening in a marriage? I'll tell you what's happening in a marriage. There's fear of rejection. Or that community group or that friendship. It'll affect your intimacy with God. It'll also affect intimacy with others as well. Why? Because the law of best relationship, God, works in two ways. One, if you're able to sort of pull it off, you look at other people who don't do as well and you judge them. And others, when you, <laughs> what is it about us? The law of best relationship, like when we don't do well, we feel a sense of condemnation. But when we feel a sense of condemnation, we don't just go, oh, I feel condemned. You know what we do? We what? We condemn other people. <laughs> do you know why? Because when you're feeling condemnation because you don't measure up, you have to feel better about yourself. How are you going to feel better about yourself but the fact that you're falling short? Well, you look around and go, who else is falling short? Well, I'm going to pick, I'm better than you. I mean, I'm better than him, but I was I'm better than you. If you're feeling condemnation in love and relationship, you're going to start condemning other people around you. Oh, you might not point fingers, but you know who you are. I know who I am. You know what else it does? It will hinder the people that we want to reach out to the most. Listen very carefully. If you're in a law-based relationship with God, it's a performance-based relationship. Performance-based. When you perform well. Listen, everybody in and around us, they're not Christians. They're already living performance-based relationships. Hello? At work? In their marriages? In their families? They're already living performance-based relationships where they're trying to prove themselves to find validation everywhere, anywhere they go. So when you come along with Christianity that says... Another performance-based relationship. Why in the world would they go, give me some of that? They would look at that and go, I already have enough of that in my life. No, thank you. So if they're looking at you and they're going, your Christian life seems to be one of performance-based relationship. What would be the attraction of that to somebody who doesn't know Jesus? And by the way, you don't have to say, this is what I believe. People could smell it. You know, you and I know this stuff about laws and rules. We know that laws and rules, can I ask you, do laws and rules have compassion? <laughs> do laws and rules come and go, there, there, there? No. Do laws and rules, do they, do they rejoice with you when you do well? Do laws and rules come and put their arms around you when you're struggling going, I'm with you? Do laws and rules do any of that? No. It lays it down and demands obedience. And yet, Here's the crazy part. You ready? This is how we want to approach God. Why is that? (laughs) I'm not asking rhetorically. Like, I'm asking you to, why do we do that? If this is the way we look at it, that's nothing, that's beautiful, nothing. Why is it that when it comes to God, we want to approach God from a performance base, what I do impacts relationships? Why, Why do we do that? Are we just stupid? Lie to. Control. What else? What we're used to. Oh, what we're used to. You breathe breathe and you swim this. I breathe and I swim this. Even now. Do you know every Sunday morning I feel enormous pressure. Do you know why? Because I've got 500 beating little eyes judging me. 
is a lot of pressure, man. Kid, if I really believed this down to my heart, I wouldn't care about what you think. But I live and breathe performance-based relationship, so Pastor Peter cares deeply about what those leedy-beedy little eyes think. You're, Janessa, she's offended that she doesn't have beady eyes. You're not even Asian. Why are you offended by that? I don't understand. <laughs> you guys, you guys, you know why we do this? Listen, listen. I'm, I'm, I'm making Romans very plain. So I've like, I'm making Romans very plain. Look. Do you know why we do this? Paul calls it in Romans 7 and 8, living in the flesh. You know what living in the flesh is? When you and I come out of our mother's womb, wah, the moment we come out of mother's womb, do you know that we come out with the God complex? Do you know that we come out God wannabes? Do you know that we come out going, I want to be in control of the world? Do you know this? Okay, you're in denial. Okay. We come out of the womb like this. We go, you know what? I'm just going to... We, we come out of the womb, God, wanna, we want to be in control. Somebody said this, in, in this, in, in this mentality that says, I'm Lord, Savior of my life. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm going to do whatever the heck I want to do. Some of you, this hits close to home because you grew up in a family where your family imploded because your dad's attitude to whole life was what? Nobody tells me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so here's the thing. So when it comes to relationship with God, here's where we go. God, let me explain it this way. Last week, there was a gentleman who sat right there. He comes up to me. He goes, hi, my name is so-and-so. He goes, I'm an atheist. And he was apologetic about it. I'm like, you don't have to apologize. He's like, I'm an atheist. And, and, but I want to tell you. It was like the most, his words, sort of friendly, passionate Spirit sort of filled church I've ever been to. I'm like, wow. That's very deep for an atheist. Do you know how many times I've had experiences where people like that would come up to me and they would say this. They go, you know, I understand this grace thing. You do? I understand it. Yeah. I understand that if you are truly saved by grace, that there's nothing that God can't demand of you. So I'm not ready. Do you know why you and I struggle with grace? Because if you and I truly believe that we are saved by grace and grace alone, there's nothing that God can't ask of us. So what do we do? (laughs) When it comes to salvation, God, there's something I can do, right? There's something I can contribute. Anything? A little bit? Something. Why? Because if there's something that I can contribute, it's no longer grace. It's works righteousness, and I'm in control. Do you know your heart? You don't struggle with grace because it's, well, we actually do struggle with grace. It's kind of like believing in aliens from outer space, you know. I've never seen it. It could exist. I suppose it's possible, but I've never experienced it. But the other reason is fundamentally, if you are truly saved by grace, you know that there's nothing that God can't demand of you. He could ask you for anything. And you and I, that's traumatic. So when grace comes, we panic. 
We don't just go, oh, grace. We panic. Grace comes like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Something I can contribute. Anything I can contribute. I'm a good person. Works righteousness. Why? Because God, then I'm in control. You don't tell me what to do. You don't tell me to ask. That's the fundamental motor of your heart right now in my heart. Oh, no, no, God. Look, I contribute something. I, I contribute. It's not all you. I contribute something. So you know what? I don't like my life is going. How dare you bring this into my life? I demand. Oh, no, you can't ask me for that. You can't. Why? Why? Why, God? You can't. All surrender. Total surrender. You can't ask me for that. Why? Why? Look what I do for you. Do you understand? That's why you struggle grasping grace. Because if you're truly saved by unconditional love and grace, God comes to you and goes, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And who wants to be uh, logical about that? This is why you and I, from bottom of our hearts, law-based, performance-based, something I can do, something I can contribute, anything. So when we come to Romans chapter 7, Paul begins to address this issue of the law. And he says, we are set free from that. We are set free from the performance-based relationship with the law. In what sense? How do we die to the law? Paul says, you know, Paul makes it sound negative. In what sense is Paul talking about the law as being negative? And we're going to talk about that in a moment here. In other places, he talks about the law positively. And there's a really, really simple way to look at it. When Paul talks about the law negatively, he is talking about this performance-based relationship with God. This I have to perform. I have to do A, B, C, D to be accepted by God, to be in on this relationship with God. And when he talks about the law positively, he's simply talking about, and we'll talk more about this next week, the law of God revealing the heart of God, the character of God. And the Bible's clear. Psalm 119. Read Psalm 119. For some of us that grew up in legalistic churches, we go law, and we go bad, law, bad. David says, I love your law. I delight in your law. It's like honey to my mouth. I meditate at day and night. The law is a beautiful thing when we laid it properly to it. So what is Paul saying in Romans 7 when he says, your relationship to the law has been changed forever? Today's Mother's Day. I'm going to get you out of here soon so you can go have lunch with your mothers. We're going to look at four verses. Let's go. Romans chapter 7 verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law? Positively, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. If her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Verse 3. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Verse 4. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. If you're taking notes, here's essentially the summary of what Paul says here. We should obey the law. We should follow the law, but we shouldn't be, here's a quick word, married to the law. We should obey the law. We should follow the law of God. They're good. They reveal the character of God, but we shouldn't be married to the law. And you miss that entirely if you miss this metaphor in verses 1 through 3. He says, if you're married and one of your spouses dies, then you're free to remarry. If there's a death to that spouse, death to that relationship, then you are free to marry. 
And Paul shows us what this metaphor is about when he says, you have to die then to the law so that you might belong to another. Here's what Paul's saying. Right now, many of us, we are married to the law. We're in arms of the law. And he says, die to the law so that you might belong to another. Marriage metaphor. Marriage is a, it kicks your butt, man. Married couples, can I get an amen? amen. So, some of y'all singles, listen, you think it's so romantic, like, oh, I can't wait to be married. Good Lord, you are so naive. <laughs> Marriage is hard, man. Anybody? If we sit there going, Peter, you're so unromantic, I'm realistic. Marriage is hard, but you know what the power, listen, you know why it's so hard? I'll tell you exactly why. Do you know what marriage does to you? Marriage has the power to reprogram your self-image and your sense of self. Do you know what I mean by that? Marriage has the power to reprogram your sense of self. See, we live in a culture. It's so stupid. That's just if I create your own destiny. Your identity is yours to make. That's poo. (laughs) Who among us here is truly who we are? Because in and of ourselves, we tell us who we are. Anybody? You know who we are? We're a product of what our parents have said. Good and bad. We're a product of what our siblings have said. Yep, our siblings. Yep, yep. Good and bad. We're a product of what everybody around us relationally has said to you. That's who we are. Our identity is formed by that. Now, here's the thing. Marriage has the power to reprogram that that self-image, that identity. That's the power of relationship. That you can look in the face of your spouse and the whole world can say about your spouse, you're ugly. But if your husband or your wife looks at you in the face and goes, but you're beautiful, you feel what? Beautiful. Marriage has the power to reprogram your self-image. Marriage, that's why God says, marriage is the most important relationship outside the relationship of your family. It has that kind of of a power to reprogram you. Just two minutes of sight. This is why, do you know what's toxic to a marriage? It's not just there's no communication, miscommunication. And this is sad for me as a pastor. Is when husbands and wives speak words to each other that hurt rather than heal. That wound rather than build up. That tear down rather than affirm. Hey, well, why does it happen in a marriage? By the way, how many of you guys grew up where your parents did this? Anybody? Yeah. Hey, well, why do we do that? Well, sometimes because the, one of the spouses is just a jerk. But you know what else I've seen? More subtle. It's amazing how many couples I see who are competitive with each other. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I heading close to home for some? Like, I've been out to dinners with couples, and I'm sitting there watching the couple, and literally, they are trying to outdo each other on who's funnier, who's more charming, who get in on the word, and sometimes the word says who's more spiritual. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And it's the most uncomfortable thing because you're sitting there going, oh, my gosh. You, know, you just want to go, chill. What? And you go, well, okay, how do you fix that? Counseling, therapy, sure, those are good. But you know what's fundamentally about that? Fundamentally about that is the husband and the wife are living in a performance-based mentality that says my affirmation comes because what? I'm successful, make money, I'm funny, I'm spiritual, so on and so forth. 
And until that is dealt with at the core, you're never going to speak words. So here's what happens in a marriage. In a marriage, you sit there and you go, what? I'm not feeling encouraged. I'm not feeling affirmed. And you never, ever go, I wonder if my wife is feeling encouraged. I wonder if my wife is feeling affirmed. I wonder if I can speak words of kindness and compassion that would build her up. You sit there and you resent it and you go, what about me, 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 Why aren't they speaking? And so we speak words that hurt, they heal, they wound. If you're in a marriage like that, that was like a two-minute side thing. If you're in a marriage like that and deep down inside there's a spirit of competition between your husband and your wife, and you know this. I want you to go home today. I want you to speak honestly with each other and go, let me admit to you and confess to you why I do that. It's because the grace of God, the love of God, and the affirmation of God, and the validation of God for me is not enough. And I'm seeking it from you, and when you don't give it, I get resentful. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. What does Paul mean when he says you're married to the law? It's not just that you follow the law to please God. That's fine. Or you love your neighbor, you guys. That's fine. Those are good things. But listen very carefully. To be married to the law means that you're getting your very sense of self from the law. To be married to the law means that you're getting your very sense of self from what? I'm obeying. I'm good. I serve. I'm religious. I'm moral. I help the needy and the poor. I pray. And because I do these things, I know I'm a good person. To be married to the law is to find ultimate validation, ultimate significance, ultimate identity in the fact that you are proving yourself to God. You're proving yourself to other people. And sometimes you're trying to prove yourself to who? yourself you're married to the law because it's looking at the face of the law looking at the face of the law and saying it's because i'm moral it's because i'm good it's because i do all these do's and don'ts i know that i'm somebody and paul says if that's you you are enslaved to the law do you know why if you're getting your very sense of self from the law if you're getting your very sense of self from moral performance the dominant motive in your life is what it's fear it's fear it's insecurity why do you tell the truth? A law-based person says, I tell the truth because, honestly, I'm scared. Scared of what? If I don't tell the truth, God's going to punish me. I'm going to go to hell. My reputation is going to be ruined. Fundamentally, why do you tell the truth? It's fear. It's fear. If the fundamental motivation as you look in the face of the law and your obedience and doing other things, it's because of fear. Listen very carefully. Do you know what happens? You're going to be incredibly driven incredibly driven because the entire sense of being is based on how you're performing and so you're constantly overly sensitive. Why are they criticizing me? What, 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 what do they think? Fear at its core is self-absorption. Self-centeredness is selfishness. It's constantly about how am I doing? How are people perceiving me? Are they treating me okay? What am I? Me, 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 me. So how can you deal with self-absorption when the fundamental motivation of your heart is self-absorption? It will never work. How many of us are today walking around, married to the law, looking at the face of the law going, it's because I'm a good person, you know. It's because I do these things. I know that I'm okay with God. I know that I'm okay with other people. And I'm okay with myself. And fundamentally, you're insecure, afraid, and driven, driven.
You say you're a Christian, but I want to tell you, are you married to the law? You think you may be serving God, and you're saying, no, 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 Peter, the law is just a means to an end. No, 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 no. The law actually is the end. Fundamentally, it's I'm looking to the law to give me a sense of self and who I am. And Paul says what? Wow, this is so huge, you guys. Verse 4. He says, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. He says what? He says, you are no longer in the arms of the law. You are no longer married to the law. He says, you are what? You belong to another. You're in the arms of another. You're in the arms of who? Who? You're no longer married to the arms under the law. You're in the arms of Jesus. You're in the arms of your beloved. And what does that mean? Here's what it means. When you're married to the law, you look at the face of the law and you're going, it's because I do these things. It's because I'm moral. I'm religious. It's because I'm doing all these things. Even if I'm resentful, I'm angry inside, I'm bitter, I'm critical. And when suffering comes into my life, I don't handle it well because God, I do all these things. I don't deserve it. You're married to the law. Jesus says, when I come into your life, you're no longer married to the law. You're married to me. What does that mean? That means that you no longer look in the face of the law. You look in the face of your Savior, of your beloved, Jesus. And you're no longer getting that sense of self. Listen, that's the only thing when you're looking in the face of Jesus and you're in the arms of the beloved, that that voice of self-absorption, self-centeredness, selfishness, that's me, 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 that black hole that's just sucking everything in and it's making your life miserable, everyone else's life miserable because you are driven and you're scared. The only thing that will silence that voice is when you see, to the degree that you see, that you are married to Jesus, looking into his face and what is he saying to you? I love you. I love you unconditionally. I've done all this for you. Do you deserve it? No. Purely out of grace. I've done it all for you. Not so that if you don't, you're going to be condemned, but because there's no longer any more condemnation. And you look in the face of that and you're going, that's the only thing that will silence the voice in your heart and head that says, perform got to do well. <sighs> You've died to the law. You've died to the old way, the old system of relating to God based on your performance. You belong to the, you're now married to Christ. Oh. Is this good news? <laughs> Listen, you guys. <sighs> do you know why I think the marriage metaphor is so amazing and wonderful? in terms of teaching us about how to relate to the law, the law of God that's beautiful, that's good. Let me just share something from personal. For those of us that are married, maybe you could relate. There is a loss of freedom. I put that in quotes. When you get married. Single men, <laughs> I keep saying this, you need to grow up a little bit, you know. But I, I'm there with you. We go, oh, I don't. When you get married, that's duty. That's obligation. Like, I don't get to do whatever the heck I want to do. No, when you get married, you don't get to do whatever the heck you want to do. There is loss of freedom in a sense. But you know what you get, though? Check this out. Intimacy, acceptance, security, and love. You go, well, I have that. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. You know why? You know why? Let me tell you. 
because, because the kind of love and security acceptance that comes in a relationship with the two people who said to each other, I am totally, exclusively, forever committed to you, honey, sweet baby, and I ain't going anywhere. When that comes into your life, the love, intimacy, acceptance that you feel, anybody know what I'm talking about? It's amazing. Now, here's the thing. When that happens, duty and obligation, is it a drag? No. Check this out. You get pleasure from giving pleasure. Jeez, Louise, man. Us husbands, we need to go home and repent tonight. Our wives are going, listen to what he's saying. Listen to what I'm saying. Ultimate love and unconditional love is when you realize that the greatest joy comes from giving joy to your beloved. Do you understand? And so the best healthy marriages are when you as a spouse are going, what are the wishes of my beloved? What are the desires of my beloved? And I want to do that. Why? Because it's in doing that that I get pleasure. I don't have to get up at 4.35 in the morning to make my wife's favorite breakfast. I get to. Do you understand? I don't have to go, Jenny. I what? Say it with me. I, I get to. I don't have to take naps. I what? I get to take naps. It's a wonderful gift. (laughs) Can I ask you something? Is this your relationship to Jesus? When you look at the law of God, when you look at the law of God, when you look at the commandments of God, do you look at them as you behold the face of the beloved and saying, these things, it's just an instrument, a route, an avenue to delight, to please the one that I love. Do you know what this would do to our obedience if we looked upon the laws of Christ? That's Paul's argument. And we look at the face of Christ and we say, these things, I don't have to do them. You don't. I don't have to do them, but I get to do them. Why? They delight you. They give you pleasure. They bring you joy, Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah. And when I do that, check this out. (gasps) I get joy. Do you see how this is fundamentally different from lay down the law, change your heart. Jesus comes and says, look into my face. Don't do it because you feel you're going to be condemned. Do it because you know that you will never be condemned. For some of us, we're not married to Jesus. You know who Jesus is? He's our boss. When we perform well, he's happy with us. When we perform poorly, I might get fired. How close can you get to your boss when you know he or she has the power to fire you? Is Jesus your spouse? Is Jesus your heavenly spouse on this Mother's Day? And you look into his face and going, oh, I get to do this? Yeah. And as you do it, I'm telling you guys, listen, listen, if you don't believe me, try it, try it, try it. The happiest moments of my life is not when Peter gets to do what Peter gets to do in our marriage. The happiest moments of my life is when I could bring pure joy and delight to my wife. 
and seeing her <gasps> light up. And Peter goes, <gasps> why? Because she went, <gasps> oh, <gasps> so we're both going, <gasps> that's why you're not married. Sven, you have a long way to go, bro. Is Jesus, you know what Jesus says? See, he comes, he goes, look, 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 look. What's the new motivation to obey? He goes, gratitude. Gratitude, really? Gratitude. Joy. Joy? Really? Joy, yeah. Love? Love, yeah. But it's such a grind, Jesus. No, no, no. Pleasure and duty, though opposite before. Now that you've seen my beauty, they're opposite no more. Pleasure and duty. When you see his beauty, they come together. See, here's the amazing thing about the gospel. You ready? It's when you come to realize the pride-smashing reality that you can't do anything to please him, that all of a sudden you will begin to want to do everything to please him. Where are you today? Where are you today? Come, can be honest. Where are you today? Is obedience a grind? Is obedience a moral? Oh, is obedience just, oh. <laughs> or is it? <gasps> I get to do this. I get to do this. I get to do this, Jesus. You get to do it. I don't have to. You don't have to. I get to. I get to. I get tons of emails, which I really appreciate. And, and this one, this is from somebody. I'm done with this. This is somebody who's dealed and dealt with, struggled with addiction for about 20 years on and off. Loves the Lord, this person. I'll just end with this email. He says, my attempts, Pastor Peter, my failed attempts at living a moral and just life have made me more and more reliant on grace. I'm not the person who started this walk, but I've persistent besetting sins that surface over and over and over again. He says, I would be unable to continue living the Christian life without utter reliance on this truth, that my identity as a Christian and all of my hope for my own salvation are in the work of Jesus Christ. Can you get an amen? Okay. And he says, because of my awareness, remember, struggling with addictions, 20 years. Because of my awareness of my own sinfulness, I am aware that grace is really all that I have. Because of myself, I am nothing. And then he says, I love this. Here's the interesting part. My desire to overcome sin in my life has increased with my reliance on an absorption of grace. Instead of giving up and upsetting old habits and negative traits, I am finding greater and greater joy in repentance and in obedience. Even though I struggle and always will, I am not a slave to sin. I am free. And then he says this. This is why I love Romans and Galatians so much. Because they point me to the truth of the gospel when I fear that I'm not worthy of grace. The law can only diagnose and point us 
to the ultimate cure. Have you come to the end of yourself yet? Of course you haven't. That's why we're going to continue this journey. Because you need to come to the end of yourself where you go, not just, I'm a bad person, but Jesus, I don't love you. I'm not in your arms. I'm in the arms of the law. I hate the law I'm obeying. I'm resentful. I'm critical. I'm judgmental. And I'm constantly insecure. Whose face are you looking to? The law? Or the face of your Savior? Savior? 